Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm very excited to introduce to you a new friend of mine, Susan Farron. She's doing the most amazing work, and I can't wait to share this with all of you. But she's a retired paramedic. She's founder of First Responders Resiliency. And this is just, it's such critical work because it's not a conversation a lot of people have been having in the past. So welcome, Susan. Can you tell us a little bit about what this actually is? Hi, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. First Responder Resiliency, Inc. is a first responder founded and run organization that helps other first responders deal with the trauma and the stress that they're exposed to on a regular basis. So key. And I think it's something that we don't really think about. We think about the stress of, you know, what the people around them are experiencing and how they're managing that. But I, I would imagine there's a there's an immense amount of personal trauma that that occurs every time you see someone that you know, is either in pain or dying in a lot of situations. Sure, sure. There is the direct exposure trauma. And then there's secondary trauma just from hearing other people's experiences. And I think a lot of times what's happened is in our industry, we have always had the best equipment, the best training for our bodies, but nothing really for our minds. So oftentimes what we've done is we've suppressed what our feelings naturally are to be able to run our calls and to do our job. And then what we're finding out now is there was a huge price to pay. And so we're doing the work to help other first responders deal with this stress that's showing up in their bodies and their minds and their relationships. That's awesome. And I remember, so we met sort of in this funny situation, you know, through a mutual friend in a barn, and we got into this great conversation about you know, sort of everything from the experience of being a first responder and, and life as a paramedic. And we also, this was sort of just after some of the wildfires. And so as a lot of you listeners out there have heard, obviously, California has been experiencing a lot of problems with wildfires. And there's a lot of other major trauma and tragedy that's happening in the environment that's resulting in, you know, sort of First responders and, and paramedics are their whole world is changing. So I would imagine uh, the need for what you're doing is so much greater. It's really interesting. As I was doing this research initially two and a half years ago into what was happening to first responders, what I realized in doing this was it wasn't just the psychological changes that were taking place in us, not just the stress of what was happening to us emotionally, but there were actually neurological changes taking place to our brains as a result of being repeatedly exposed. There were physical changes. Actually, we discovered that organ cancer is one of the top killers of first responders, that they have a life expectancy of 15 years less than civilians, a divorce rate of higher than 70%, an addiction rate that's almost difficult to track. And most importantly, out of all of that, a suicide rate that has doubled since 2014. And that was the primary issue that I looked at that and said, we have got to do something to intervene on this because these folks are not asking for help. They're going inside and solving the problem through permanent means, which is not what we want happening. And from what I remember of our conversation, you were talking about a lot of it was just uh, teaching people that there is 
resources out there and that it's okay to to seek out, seek help when you're when you're feeling this way but also just training the organizations that are supporting them that there is this need because it was so hush hush yeah what we realize is that a big part of what's happened is everything that has been centered around the care of first responders and of course we saw this initially with uh, veterans both Vietnam and then of course now we've got the Middle East experience is a lot of what was happening for veterans was reactive. Once they had the symptoms of PTSD, or what we now refer to as PTSI, we refer to it as an injury, not a disorder, because it happens as a result of a trauma, just like an injured leg would. And so PTSI, the treatment has always been reactive. So once you have the symptoms of of post-traumatic stress injury, then you seek care. What we do is we provide a, a proactive approach. We train people um, not only what you're going to see, but how your body's going to respond to that and what skills and techniques you can use to help keep that stress at bay so that you don't take it home. It doesn't store inside your nervous system. It doesn't store inside your body so that you can stay well, get well, and have a happy personal, professional career life because when you store those sorts of stresses and toxins in your body, the whole human system pays the price. Absolutely. And there's there's such a great need for that. How do you scale something like this? Because it is, it seems like you're really on the cutting edge of something that's so critical for the support of, of first responders, but of basically helping us through this next step where there are, there are so many things happening. You've been looking at scaling. I know we talked a little bit about this, where technology takes, it can, can help, but what's your solution? And in terms of besides just finding the education piece? Well, what we're doing now is certainly part of it is the awareness and the education, as you said, but also we provide modalities for folks to be able to use everything that's from things that are being used by elite athletes to the military as well, special ops divisions where we train people in techniques that can be utilized. Everything from, like we said earlier, nervous system control, tactical breathing, discharging the energy from your body, recognizing your mind patterns, your focus, things that can be used from a physical vantage point to reduce that. But another area that we're using that is really sort of on the cutting edge of tracking this is technology and specifically things like creating what we're working on now is a first responder app. And that specifically allows the first responder to track their own trauma exposure based on how they felt about the event, whether that was a minor exposure or a very severe exposure to trauma, maybe a fatal accident or a shooting where they were there and there was a a loss of life. And in which case, as the first responder tracks their own exposure, it will actually, the the app will drive them towards areas where we've trained them in modalities and self-care. So the higher the graph towards uh, exposure, the higher the press for them to do some of these techniques to reduce their own stress. Nice. And I think you you mentioned also that the place where sort of mindfulness and meditation comes in. Is that something new in the world of first responders? Is there resistance or how is that how is that received when you say, okay, oh, just meditate? Right. <laughs> Great question. Great question. Because Um, Absolutely, there's resistance to this because oftentimes first responders see themselves as sort of an inclusive group. There is that sense of separation that happens through social socializing with first responders, a real common question, people asking them, what's the worst thing you've ever seen, which 
makes the first responder not only triggers them to tell the story, but their body relives the event. So the Oof. person asking the question has a cognitive experience, but the first responder has a physical and a cognitive experience. So they're being exposed through that pressure. And then also that separation of them socially by saying things like, well, how do you do that for a living? I could never do that for a living. So the first responder is already feeling sort of inclusive in, in their own environment, just first responders, which is why this organization is first responder run, because we understand each other. So with that being said, meditation has always been seen as sort of a, even just only a few years ago, sort of a hippie thing that's done. You don't see that in mainstream organizations, but that's very different today. We're seeing it enter corporate world. Uh, it's certainly being used in the military. Um, there are several police departments and now fire departments getting involved in this. And what we've had, what's really changed in the last few years for all of us is there is scientific data to prove it works. There is research and science. And when we're standing in front of a room full of first responders and we say, here's the research, here are the MRIs, look what happens to your brain mm -hmm. as a result of meditating, now everybody's hooked. Because these are folks who are used to rules, regulations, protocols, and data. And we enter the door with that information. And then once they believe that it's accurate and effective, now we can get them exposed to it. And once they do it for themselves and they see the benefits, it's a win. Ah, oh, that beautiful data. We love data. <laughs> <laughs> you got you had me at data. Yeah, you had me at data. I love it. <laughs> but it's so true. I mean, you know, the, the work that I've done and with the crossover between technology and human mm -hmm. behavior and you know, working with presence of mind in the workplace, you know, you, it's, until they see the data, there's so much resistance. And then you show people data and all of a sudden, like the floodgates open of, yeah. oh, well, this stuff actually works. Oh, there's an actual need for this. You're not just talking gobbledygook. And yeah, it's kind of, it, data is pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that too often in the past, we've thought of it, if it's theory, there's no way to prove that theory works, but we now have data from everything from sleep deprivation to right brain involvement to nervous system involvement to physical impacts of stress. Everything that we address, we have research to prove. And these modalities specifically in relationship to the psychological is the number one area that's been addressed. That has been sort of dealt with ad nauseum in our industry, specifically we have therapists through the employee assistance programs. We have something called critical incident stress management, which is also a great peer-driven program that is, uh, involves therapists. But again, it's a talk therapy. And now there's been peer counseling, which is first responders talking to first responders. But the problem is if they're both still on duty, they're carrying each other's baggage and pain. And so all of us who are doing this work now, helping first responders on duty are retired first responders and providing nice. them the information that shows them this isn't just a psychological issue. Mm -hmm. It's neurological, it's physical, it's emotional, and it's relational. And here's the research that shows that. Then they're listening. Now we've got them paying attention and willing to learn. And we show them these techniques and it's amazing. It is life altering for all of us. And it, it comes because we've all done the work that allows us the opportunity to do the work for others. 
I'm very interested in the the piece that you were just talking about with retired people coming, you know, sort of mentoring and being a resource. And I think a lot of the work that I do is sort of understanding the benefits of that cross-generational interaction, whether it's, you know, someone that's actually physically a different generation or whether they're just in a different life phase or they're working on different things. But there's, you know, there's the people that are retired and there's people that are considering it as a career that maybe haven't even tried it yet. And that whole life cycle of the career of a first responder, I would think it's so critical to be able to have that mentorship and to have the buy-in from the people that have retired to say, to say the people even before they start, this is what you need to understand. And here's how you take care of yourself so that you can stay strong and do your job better and still remain a whole individual in that process. And technology can be a great tool for that by connecting people that are more remotely but also people that are more like-minded. Is that something that you've been harnessing within your resiliency first, or is that? Yeah, absolutely. Is The whole goal is to make this almost a cycle, just like you sort of referred to it, Heidi, which is really, that's just a brilliant way of, of creating that perspective, which is we we really thought coming into this, it would be the new ones. It would be the young ones who would be so eager to see what we were doing. But what we realized is the young ones don't really, for, for lack of a better phrase, young ones, new ones, the new folks don't sometimes have enough exposure to realize the value of what's coming. And so the retired ones already do. They've had mm-hmm. a lifetime of the exposure to trauma and stress. And so for the young ones, what we call it is preview of coming attractions, which means that with or without your permission, these changes are going to take place in your mind and in your body. And we're going to prepare you for that. So when it happens, you recognize it, you have an awareness, and we're going to give you tools to help counteract some of that stress. And then for the ones who are already on duty, we give them sustainable techniques that they can use throughout. And then with the retired ones, and here's a really key point to the first responder world, because this is such a purpose-driven organization, we have such a sense of value in what we do for others, that what happens when they retire or in more drastic cases are medically disabled through an injury or an illness the first responders, they lose that sense of purpose, Mm. but more importantly, they lose that sense of camaraderie Mm. because it's such a tribe mentality. I think all of humanity is that way, but specifically in an organization that requires you to be so dependent on one another for your sustainability and your safety and calls that when you're separated from your troop, your tribe, it's a real it's a real emotional loss for them. So being able to bring them back in when they're retired or disabled and say, we're going to use your skill set, your experience to help train the young ones and help sustain the ones who are on the job, it gives us all such a sense of value. And so connecting us, like you said, both personally and through technology and people being able to check in with one another as mentors through these organizations and apps is really going to, it's going to benefit everybody. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with Chip Conley's work on Modern Elder, where they've been looking at, uh, it's it, there it's more in the sort of the corporate environment, but the value mm-hmm. of the seniors and, and by seniors, I don't necessarily mean by age, but more the people that have been around longer and they understand the systems and they have seen the change over time so they can provide a unique perspective. Uh, right. But that the value of harnessing that and also not just harnessing that, but really creating a a culture where that value is recognized 
and and appreciated all the way down to you know sort of the seedlings to understand that these pieces are critical. They have the perspective of having gone through the whole cycle of it and can mm-hmm. come back, even though the tools may have changed during the process, we still go through the same physiological and mental changes despite the tools changing. Because, Absolutely. You know, it, and, and it may, even the pace may have changed, but it's still the same kinds of change that have occurred. And, uh, it, you know, when you were talking, it was reminding me of, some friends of mine, actually, while I was doing my PhD, there's these two, what I would say were sort of very unlikely comrades in that one of them was retired military, and the other had was just leaving the Mormon church, and he had been, I can't remember the title of it, but he'd been very high up in the Mormon church. Wow. And both of them were shared, they really bonded over the fact that leaving those communities was very traumatic for them because they lost their tribe. Yeah. And sort of what that meant for them in terms of sort of identifying what their purpose and their humanity was and where did they fit and did anybody else understand why they left and what the, you know, all of those different pieces. Mm. Do you look at also, you talked about some that retire and some of them obviously from, you know, earlier than expected, but is there also that support for those that realize maybe partway into it that it's the, it was the wrong choice? It's not the right career choice for them. Cause I can't, yeah. I can imagine there's a lot of people that, that it's not really for them that, you know, they may be yeah. idealistic going in, but it's a tough job. Yeah. The career expectancy, especially for uh, even for paramedics is uh, three to six years. Wow. And that's really shocking. But people realize a lot of times it's not sustainable. And they oftentimes will move into, you know, further medical careers, maybe becoming nurses and doctors, ER docs, helicopter medics, things like that off of the ground, as we say. But there are also big career changes that take place. And they leave this industry altogether because they realize it's not what they, like you said, it's not what they expected to get into. But I would say a majority of folks who go into the industry already know walking into the academy that they're excited about what they're going to do. It's a calling. Mm-hmm. And that's it's probably the best way to put it. It's definitely a calling. I think it's true for folks who do lifetime military mm-hmm. as well. There's a sense of allegiance and loyalty that keeps them in an industry, even if they promote. And that's a big part of it is that people will promote off of the streets, as I say. And and I want to back up and just say, when I talk to first about first responders, we're talking about fire, police, medical personnel, doctors, nurses, and dispatchers as well. So these are folks who have exposure from all these different angles, but you can promote. And sometimes when you recognize, geez, it's getting really hard for me on the streets, so to speak, we can promote into training positions or supervisory positions. And so you're still keeping a nexus to the industry but maybe not having the direct trauma exposure. Does that seem fair? Oh, absolutely. And that, and I think that's brilliant because you're, you know, like you said, when people join those career paths, they generally have a calling. And mm-hmm. so, but, but maybe for whatever reason that, you know, they're an empath or they have something else that makes it very difficult for them to be in that line of fire, so to speak. That's right. That, but they still can be a supporting role. And those supporting roles are just as critical. I mean, I think about the, you know, the people that answer the call, the 911 calls, they may Absolutely. not be physically there, but that's, they're taking on a lot. And they're sometimes talking people out of suicide or whatever. That's, that can be tough. 
That's tough stuff. And the dispatchers have a, a sort of a special space in this because when you're a firefighter or paramedic or a police officer, you're actually being physically engaged in the events. So if there's a, a car crash and you're extricating the patient and putting the equipment on them and transporting them, there's a physical discharge of the energy just by running the call. But for dispatchers, they're in a room sitting in a chair taking on all the energy of the fear and the stress, and then not being able to move or discharge that. And so giving the dispatcher specifically physical outlets for releasing some of that energy that they um, absorb through what they do is very important to us. And you made a comment that I thought was really, really creative and relevant to what we were doing here, which is you talked about creating a culture. And that's a the big part of what we're doing here in this organization is All of us who are leading this really have somewhere upwards of 20 years on the streets. My experience was uh, 33 years uh, working in the industry as a paramedic. And one of the things that we realized is this is not just an educational change. This is a culture shift. Mm. We're taking a culture that has been really trained at the dining room table and often in the briefing rooms about suppressing your emotions, not talking about it, only getting psychotherapy. We're changing this culture to one of open conversation about how you're feeling. Feel is not is not just a four-letter F word. Mm. Feel is something that's acceptable and appropriate for people in this industry. And knowing how to release that in a time in your own life where you can still keep it in check on duty when you need to, that you're releasing it off duty. And that is the key here is in this culture that we've had, the suppression takes place on duty and then we can't let it out off duty. And there's where all the stress, you start bottling it up, bottling it up. And it's like putting a Coke can in the freezer. It just, the pressure, it's more and more intense until it ends up showing up somewhere through illness or injury or depression, isolation and addiction. Yeah, and I would imagine it has a huge impact on families. Uh, you know, that are the support system for those first responders. So in the way that you're working, do you expand your support for sort of the the extended network so that people that are the support system for the first responders actually understand how to be to be a better support for their loved ones? Absolutely. That is a, a really big component of what we do. Most of our training when we go into, whether it's uh, fire departments or police departments, we put on a 16-hour training that not only provides all the information, education, and modalities that we have in practice, but we bring their families in on the second day at a separate location, and we train the families. We educate them about what's happening uh, in all the human systems of the first responder, and then we train them how to take care of themselves. So as we call it, they, they can become a lighthouse to the first responder. So when the first responder is starting to struggle and they see their significant other holding space, being grounded, they recognize there's a safe place to go. We don't train the families to be codependent or patronizing, but we teach them great self-care techniques for themselves so that they can embody and embrace the same techniques we're training the first responder in, and now the whole family is doing it. So that training that we do um, we have an, a, a wonderful group of people. Off of, many of them are uh, spouses of first responders who do this training. And we train everybody who's associated with a first responder who wants to come. That can be parents, aunts, uncles, um, spouses, and children over the age of 16. 
So we try to really inform them. And it, you can see that as, as exciting as it is for the first responders to get this training, and the, the phrase we often hear is, oh, thank God, mm-hmm. it's about time. But for the families who we realize very, very few of them have ever gotten any education about what's about to happen to their lives as a result of being married in this industry. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think about, I have a cousin who's a ski patroller at Jackson Hole, which is some pretty extreme, Uh crazy skiing. They lose a lot of skiers every year to avalanches and and accidents and whatnot. Uh, So it's sort of, you know, on on mountain uh, first responder experience. But what that has meant to his family, I remember, you know, we were up visiting and there was a lot of avalanches and he was out there doing backcountry control. And remember just watching his wife and sort of the you know, what what Mm. she was holding in that anxiety and space of, Mm. you know, well, what if he gets hit by an avalanche, you know? That's right. And and I think that that's often sort of put to the side. It's sort of like, oh, well, you know, that person's taking the risk, but there's, you know, the, the, uh, the loved ones are sort of secondary. So I love what you're doing. I think that's, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So, so how can we support you? How can we make sure that, that this grows and is more available across the country, across the world? Because obviously, you know, first responders are not just in America and there's plenty of need around the world to be able to support first responders better. Um, how can we help you grow this? Well, getting the information out is really a top priority for us is letting people know that we are out here as first responders. And, and I want to just say that we're not against the idea of psychotherapy. I think therapy has a great place. There's something about a first responder being able to connect with a first responder that is very unique and very powerful. And so being able to provide them education and training from a first responder perspective has been incredibly powerful for us and for them. So getting the information out is, of course, what you do brilliantly through your podcast is letting the world know what's out there for all of us and all these different uh, venues. So thank you for that, Heidi. My pleasure. Um, Also, you know, people can go and check our website. That's probably really helpful. A lot of videos. We're doing YouTube videos and stuff, letting people know what we're doing out here. And that's, I'm sure they can get it through your podcast, but it's Resiliency Mm -hmm. First, and that's one ST. So it's a little play on words there. And they can check us out and see what our site is. And then, you know, most importantly, what we're doing now is we're creating funding for our organization so that we can continue to train first responders. One Mm -hmm. of the things that we're doing right now is training trainers so that we can get more folks out, more retired and uh, available first responders who are off the job trained so that we can train more. There's been a lot of interest through some of the local, very large departments here in California that we're working with, and also with uh, law enforcement asking us to come in and host trainings. So it's all about information, education, and funding, and that's what's going to make this work. We really got this launched because we realized making change, as you know, in almost any organization requires time and effort. And when you're working with things like public safety, oftentimes there have to be approvals for changes in state training or federal training that will take sometimes months and years to enact. So to get this thing moving, because we realized how many of us were in trouble, and I had certainly been in trouble at one point in my own career. Lola has something to say about that. Because I had suffered myself and because I realized how much people were suffering, 
I realized that time was of the essence. And so I think we talked a little bit about this when we first met, which is to get this thing up and moving. I not only began talking to people and offering my services at departments, I actually sold my home to fund this and uh, launched this nonprofit, which has been the sustainability for that first year is off the proceeds of that sale. And, you know, when you believe in something, putting your own skin in the game tells people that you're serious. And I guess maybe I was telling the universe at the same time, we're doing this thing. We're doing this thing. Well, and, and so thank you for doing this thing. And I, I think if, if other people are out there that are that it's in their world or in their space that they can help can whether it's being a supporter to share the word or go on the site Absolutely. and see how they can be a volunteer. And it also sounds like you know you guys are working on this great app. I mean, if if there's other people that are interested in maybe helping out in that space, I think. You know, there's there's so much to be said for being able to take part in something that actually has an impact that's bigger than yourself. And and often when we use those those expertise that we have that come naturally or that we've worked really hard at, but they are effortless for us, just that little bit of contribution can go a long way. So I really commend you for the work that you're doing, and I wish you the very best of success with it. I, you know, however I can help, I please. Do not hesitate to reach out. But so I want to make sure people find you. And you have also got a book. Is it out or is it coming out? It's coming out. Yeah, I have a book okay. out. I'd written a book uh, several years ago called The Fireman's Wife, which was just about being married in the fire service. And the most recent one that I'm working on right now is called Firestorm, A Survivor's Story. And it's about being first responders and what we see and what we do and how we get through this industry. And it talks a lot about resiliency, which is really what our focus is today. And that should be coming out this spring. Okay. Well, so if you're listening and you don't know how you can contribute or help, I'm sure you can either go to her website, resiliencyfirst.org, or buy her book because I'm looking forward to reading it too. I think it'd be fascinating. (laughs) But I think, you know, it's really important. Earlier this year, I actually had my brother on the podcast because he works with helping people understand how to create a culture of philanthropy and, and giving back and participating in things and really creating a culture around that for your families and your organizations. And I think that's something that we don't do enough of. And and sometimes it's those small effortless pieces that we can do that have really have a big impact. So I just want to, for those of you out there listening, remind you that there are great opportunities with lots of different organizations, whether it's first responders resiliency or whether it's somebody else. That's to right. Think about where your skill set might really add value somewhere else and just you know, just help out and it feels good and it makes a difference and that's all great. So, and I think that's a really good point. I just want to make one last comment here. I think people often don't volunteer for fear that they won't be adequate or they won't be able to do enough or they're not sure, you know, the best thing we can ever do is just show up. And if nothing else, if all you can do is fold napkins or spoon soup or help fill flyers out or whatever it is, just having people show up to help. It's a perfect close on this, Heidi, which is gratitude and giving are the door openers to the rest of the good things that come into our lives. Absolutely. And with that said, one of my favorite things that my little friend, Sam, who's now seven years old, said to the policeman when we were walking down the street the other day, he stopped him and he walked over and he said, thank you for your service. 
And it just oh. melted my heart. And it made me realize that I don't do that enough. So thank you for your service and for the work that you do. And a little reminder to all of us to remember those people that have really just done amazing service to make our lives better and, and are continuing to do so to thank them. So thank you. And thank you for sharing your story today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you uh, digital self is out there have enjoyed the story. And just keep on keep on keeping on. I look forward to thank seeing you. your organization grow. And, and uh, again, shout out if we can help you out. So digital selfers, thank you for joining us today. And if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. We've got some really good interviews lined up for the rest of the year. And uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you next time. Bye bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the evolving digital self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.